Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of The Transcript for Hopkins Biotech Network. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Lee. She is an associate at Celasta Ventures, a specialist venture capital firm that focuses on investing in life science companies. And she's also an alumni. She did her PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in the Cellular and Molecular Medicine program. Hi, Lauren. Hi, nice to meet you both. Before we get into your background, could you briefly introduce us to what you're currently doing at Celasta Ventures? Sure. So I'm an associate at Celasta Ventures, and I basically screen through investment opportunities, specifically in the therapeutics and life sciences space. I can give you a bit of an intro to Celasta Ventures. So Celasta is the subsidiary of AJUIB, which is a South Korean VC fund managing about $1.8 billion as the winner management. Celasta is a U.S. subsidiary that specializes in life sciences investments. We do everything basically as Korea. So we look at European, Canadian, and American biotech companies, specializing from anywhere from really seed and series A to cross over an IPO. And that kind of means like early phase through, I'd say like phase one, two, usually. Um, and in terms of disease areas, pretty broad. Um, we like to look at oncology, immunotherapies, and rare diseases. Um, but really anything in that life sciences space, we typically look at. And it is correct to say that Celasta is a specialist VC firm, right? Yes, we're specialized in life sciences and therapeutics, so not generalists. All right, so for, for those who are not familiar, what's the difference between a specialist VC firm and a generalist firm? Right, so a specialist firm really focuses on a few core areas. Typically, life sciences firms uh, will focus on life sciences opportunities, whereas generalist VC funds might be the ones you expect from more Silicon Valley type funds. So they will invest in more digital tech and health tech in the healthcare space, um, but less specialized in life sciences, just because you need a more um, knowledgeable background about life sciences to really invest in it. Okay, so let's get into early background. Let's back up a bit. Where did you grow up and what sparked your initial interest in science? Sure. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that kind of sparked my interest in both you know, science and startups. So when I was at Berkeley, um, a lot of my friends are starters and CEOs of their own more tech-like companies, such as apps and like mental health um, applications in that space. Um, I have always known that I wanted to be a scientist. So you know, I went to Berkeley, um, majored in both economics and um, molecular cell bio, and kind of knew I wanted to find some intersection between those two worlds. Wasn't really sure how to go about it. So did the standard sciences route, um, went to Onyx um, after undergrad, um, was a research associate there working on a few projects, and then 
went to Hopkins for my PhD. I'm just curious, since you already kind of had an intro to the pharmaceutical world, what made you want to go the PhD route? Well, if you were to be a scientist, I think outside the Bay Area, which is can be a bit niche and where people are really laid back and don't really care whether or not you have a PhD, outside the SF area, you would need a PhD to be a credible scientist, I think. So it was really a route to further my career if I were to become a scientist. So how did you become interested in, in finance and the business side of healthcare? It seems like you actually discovered that in your undergraduate, seeing as how you did a science-related major as well as in economics. Yeah, so I was a typical undergrad that didn't really know what she wanted to do. So I was torn between the two. So I kind of just sought out spaces um, through maybe just like Googling or like going to like career seminars back when I was an undergrad. And lastly, because I took a lot of economics classes. So a lot of my friends were actually in the business school there. And just through them, I understood what investment banking was, private equity, venture capital. So I think that kind of exposure to just having friends in that space um, gave me a broader sense of what I wanted to do in terms of combining science and business together. Yeah, it seems like the San Francisco environment being so multifaceted, uh, a lot of interest in startups, a lot of interest in innovation and in technology and biotechnology kind of inspired you to choose two things and kind of do them in parallel. Right, exactly. So Berkeley had a lot of um, incubator funds um, back when I was there. So that kind of just sparked my interest in, okay, you are innovating all these different, you know, apps and different software, but where is the innovation in healthcare? And since I was a scientist-minded individual, I knew that I wanted to go some, into something more therapeutic-focused. So it's a very niche area, I would say, investing in therapeutics. So there are definitely like um, a lot of funds that do do it, but the majority are going to be in San Francisco and Boston. So I think being in San Francisco, that kind of helped me look into what I could do possibly in the future. So coming to Baltimore then for your PhD, that must have been a big change because there wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't a big incubator space back when you started, which was in 2015 um, compared to now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think nowadays Hawkins, the fast forward venture and um, Jorge, the tech ventures group, they've actually been increasing the exposure of these upcoming startups to VCs um, in Boston. So I think that area in Hawkins is definitely growing. Um, but I mean, Hawkins, the CMM program, as you probably know, is very translational. And I did apply widely um, to find uh, a program where I could still work on drug development. And it's actually pretty hard to find. So Hawkins was one of the few places where I could still work with clinical samples and collaborate with Lost Pharma companies, which is what I did in my PhD. Yeah, um, can you describe a little bit about your PhD research? Sure, so I was in the lab of Mark Levis, um, who studies FLIP3 um, mutant AML, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, during my PhD, I worked on both FLIP3 PKIs and um, BET inhibitors um, for FLIP3 mutated relapse refractory AML. Um, during that time, I collaborated with um, Plexicon, which is has now been acquired by Daiichi and Estellas to work on their molecules with my PI 
And a lot of it was preclinical work and working on clinical samples to develop biomarker assays for the clinical trials. So that was exactly what I was going for when I was um, applying for a PhD. I think that exposure to you know, drug development and assay development really helps you, um, whether you're gonna be a scientist or an investor, really helps you build out your toolbox um, on how to analyze different, different assays, models, et cetera. Was there anything that surprised you about working in academia compared to your industry background? Even though you were kind of sitting on this bridge between working with pharmaceutical companies for your PhD and developing um, assays, and was there anything unique about the academic environment that you weren't expecting? Yes, definitely. Academia is very different from the industry, apart from the differences in funding and resources. Um, academia, I think, really you learn to own your project because as you guys know, grad students, you get a mentor, but you're really on your own most of the time. So you really learn how to troubleshoot. And it's very different from industry because you kind of, your hand is kind of held there the entire time. You have some ownership, but not entirely because the pharma companies can't run with just giving everything to one single person. So in academia, everything is on your plate, which is very nice. You learn how to troubleshoot well, and you learn how to, you know, adapt assays that may not necessarily work for your project, but you make it work. So I think academia and a PhD are definitely necessary experiences um, to help a scientist grow. In industry, I think you get to order a lot of supplies are very high tech, very expensive. You may not even know how they actually work, but they somehow work for your protocol. So you actually end up being babied, I guess throughout your entire industry career. And you also did um, a, an internship program at ADAR Health. Um, did you apply through that on your own or did you go through a professional resource to find that? Uh, so that's a funny story. It, I mean, it was kind of an internship, but kind of not because I'm friends with the um, co-founder, um, uh, Safiya Ilumni. So I met him through, I think, a fast forward um, seminars that I had gone to just because I was starting to get to know what was out there during my third year. But I actually met him in line getting food um, and cocktails. So uh, we just um, were talking and he was mentioning that he was part of this um, really cool startup that was basically trying to revolutionize digital tech and how um, chronic care patients are managed. So I thought that that was something that could really be fulfilling for me to do during my free time outside of the lab and really wanted to understand marketing and the business side of the startup anyway. So I actually ended up working there, um, helping with the strategy with uh, Sathya and going to conferences and sort of just like getting our name out there back when the product was still in beta mode. I believe they're now clearing for FDA um, submission. So things have changed a lot since then, but at that time it was a lot of, you know, groundwork and like going to conferences, just speaking to potential investors. So that was a great learning experience. And I would encourage anyone who wants to learn more about the venture world or startups to go to these seminars and talks held by um, the passport area. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible opportunity. And I'm really glad you touched on that. Now I think, like we talked about Baltimore itself and Hopkins is becoming a bigger incubator space. And so you never know who you're going to run into. 
Right. And so it's great to have these chance encounters that result in these really phenomenal uh, career opportunities. Right. And a lot of the fast forward um, starts actually, I'm sure they could use some, um, some helpers. So like, don't be afraid to reach out to anyone um, who is part of the startup or is a founder of a startup there. Usually they would love to have an intern or just anyone to help out there. So let's backtrack to your time at, at Onyx Pharmaceuticals after you had graduated from undergrad. And this is a very interesting company I think in, in multiple ways. It was co-founded by, by the legendary VC Kevin Kinsella of Avalon Ventures. At least he's legendary to mm-hmm. me. He, one of the mm-hmm. early investors in Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which is now yeah. a multi-billion dollar company. And interestingly, he won a Tony Award in 2006 for producing the Broadway musical Jersey Boys, <laughs> apparently. Uh, yeah. So what did you work on at, at Onyx? So... At Onyx, I worked um, a little bit on some of the carfilzomib side projects. There was a proteasome inhibitor. But at that point, I had been approved. So I was really more in the translational R&D group. Um, I worked on a project that was really niche to just my area, I guess. I was I had majored in immunology at Berkeley. And at the time that I was hired, Onyx didn't have an immunology group. So I was actually hired to pick up this pet project or I guess, orphan project um, in the immunoproteasome space. Um, I, along with um, two of my managers, Chris Kirk and Lisa Kelly, um, kind of just brought it up to speed, um, basically putting it in more um, in vitro models and trying to replicate data that had once been seen before, a decade prior to my arrival. Um, It was actually really exciting because we basically revived this project that was um, hadn't been replicable for a really long time. And in the end, after two years, um, when Amgen had acquired Onyx, they were trying to decide what to do with it. And Chris Kirk, who is now the CSL of Kizar, actually spun it out of there. So that was really exciting in which I laid the groundwork, the tra- some of the assays that later became a new startup company. Um, it's now a publicly traded company. And the lead product is an analog of the immunoproteasome I had been hired to work on. So that was actually a really, really exciting project because it was basically an interface of immunology, but also some oncology exposure just because um, Onyx had been really, um, really involved in the multiple myeloma space. So I think it would be really helpful for especially PhD students that are listening to this. At what stage in your PhD did you start applying for a job? And when did you kind of know that you were ready? Yeah, so I would say I started applying um, probably earlier than most people because I'm just someone who gets like a bunch of anxiety about my future career at prospects. So I think I started applying first. I wanted, I knew I wanted to do venture capital, but didn't know how to make that jump. So I honestly looked at a ton of other routes to eventually get to venture capital. So I looked into man- uh, management consulting. I looked into um, equity research and investment banking. Thinking those three routes would somehow lead me there. Honestly, um, any any background to make it to venture capital. Now that I'm in it, I know that it doesn't matter what you do. It's really about your passion and honestly your network, I wanna say, um, that can get your foot into the door. So I think my first prospect was looking at management consulting. Um, I looked at um, what was it, McKinsey, BCG, Bain, um, a big three there, 
Um, and I think I applied, um, I want to say my third year because I graduated um, by my fourth year. So a year ahead of graduation, I started applying to summer programs. Um, I did the BCG and McKinsey, um, basically like their summer one week long workshop program. And then from there on, you're immediately um, given a first round interview. So I went through those. And then alongside those, I also looked into equity research. Um, so I think Goldman, which is the one I have applied for, has this program uh, specifically for PhD students in the healthcare space. It might be for other advanced degrees too, I'm not sure, but I just know that I um, was eligible because I was a PhD student. So there are a bunch of programs out there now that are you know, trying to target these advanced degrees. And those are really great stepping stones into getting into more like finance type um, jobs. And was your PI supportive? Because I know a lot of people, they like, I, I completely understand the anxiety about, okay, I got it. What's the next step? But sometimes yeah. a PI isn't always supportive. Did Was yours like encouraging of this or were they like, no, we want to hold on to you a little bit longer? My PI, he's great. Um, but as all PIs, especially in academia, he was not super excited about me going into venture capital or even equity research. Um, he just didn't really understand um, why you would leave um, something that you have prepared your whole life for as a scientist to work at, you know, like a finance Wall Street type of um, job. And now he's, he's very supportive at this point. Actually, I use him a lot for um, screening a lot of AML companies. We still keep in touch. So it's been really great. I'm having an expert like that basically dialed into what I do. But I will say that a lot of PIs in general won't be supportive of alternative careers. But if they're a great mentor, they'll come around and they'll help you um, get to where you need to be. Great. Is there anything you think students in this position could do to advocate for themselves more? I think it's important to start the conversation early on with your PI. Uh, I think when I started rotating in Mark's lab, I already told him I wasn't going to be a scientist. I was going to be, I didn't know at that point how I get to venture capital, how long could have taken me 20 years. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to do lab work anymore just because in undergrad, I started when I was like probably 18 and I had been doing it for like six or seven years by the time I had hit my PhD. So I just told him basically um, that I knew I wanted an alternative career and that if he accepted me into his lab, that's what I was going to aim for. So he was in the know the entire time. Okay, so now let's um, talk about your time at Celasta Ventures. So let's let's start big picture and, and go in uh, more deeper. So uh, big picture, what does a venture capitalist do in the healthcare sector? So it's a very broad uh, job, I guess, because once you get into any uh, fund or firm, hierarchy is pretty flat, meaning that everyone sources, everyone screens company, everyone does the due diligence, and everyone gets a vote whether or not an investment should be made or brought to an investment committee who will ultimately make the investment. So my job entails, you know, networking, which means um, you know, getting wine and dine sometimes, which is really nice, but really meeting a lot of other people, either business development people from pharma companies or other VC um, associates or principals who are you know, near my level of um, experience. So that kind of 
get opens the door to like new opportunities to come in. That's more inbound sourcing. And then outbound sourcing is really just, um, you know, reaching out to a company you thought was really cool that you read on Fierce Biotech or something like that. That happen happens a little bit less often just because a lot of the partners will have relationships that they've gained over decades of um, experience. And usually we get a lot of inbound interest um, from pharma companies who um, need funding. So once that happens, the connection's made, um, usually we'll meet with them um, a few times if we're interested. So they'll pitch to us typically in our Boston office um, or by a Zoom call and really go through their pipeline, um, their financing history and their needs. Um, a lot of what we're interested in is based on, I guess, what our investment portfolio currently looks like because we right now have a lot of oncology. We're kind of trying to branch out from that. So for us, we're really interested in things like um, alternative gene therapy or rare diseases. That's um, an area I'm especially um, passionate about. And then let's say that we're interested in the company. We would typically sign a CDA or an NDA as other um, industries might call it. And we get into their data room, which will have you know up to hundreds of files um, that then we'll all look through together as a team. That'll be mostly um, preclinical data, mouse models. Um, it can be any disease area. So my job is basically to um, read up on these mouse models and certain disease indications I sometimes have never heard of. And then also biomarker assays, um, clinical development plans, et cetera. So that's something that we'll look into together as a team. So, you know, I have mostly preclinical experience, but say my partner has more experience in clinical development. So we all balance each other out. So let's say we're really interested and we go through with a data room and we like what we see. So then that will just be like a back and forth discussion of how to move forward. It could be about financing. It could be about, um, you know, future plans. Um, of collaborations and, um, I guess, uh, funding from pharma companies. So like non-dilutive capital might be something we look into um, as potential ways to help the, the company grow. Um, and ultimately we bring that up to an investment committee um, for every fund that's gonna be different. Ours is um, about a member of a team of 10 members in Seoul, South Korea. So we have a call with them and they basically give us the green light. Uh, I've never gotten a red light, but typically they'll give us a green light to go. So that's basically how any fund will do it. Um, it be screening, diligence, and then an investment committee of some sort. So what types of reasons would a startup approach a VC firm? What might they want to use some working capital for? So typically it'll be to um, get into the clinic, uh, but it really depends on how early the company is because it could be something like seed stage. It's just an idea. They need the money to even get animal models. Um, and if they have mouse models ready, they might need to go into non-human primate models. And then from there, they'll need to file their IND submission um, to the FDA. And that basically gets them to the clinic. And once they're in phase one, they're going to need more money for phase two, et cetera. So I think at every phase um, or every level of growth, these companies will need money. And VCs are just um, 
an easier source than say uh, pharma collaborations because pharma is very selective about how they choose to collaborate and they actually give out you know hundreds of millions whereas a VC financing round typically for series A will be like in the teens and then it can grow outwards from there. But I don't know if you've seen any um, like CD deals from pharma companies they are usually in the hundreds of millions for a well-established biotech startup. I wanted to ask about uh, the difference between maybe, let's say all things being equal, everyone's at the same phase, looking at a startup focused on rare diseases versus something like immuno-oncology, which obviously is a very competitive field. Is there any differences in decision-making or de-risking that needs to occur for, say, if you wanted to work specifically in a rare diseases space? Yeah, so how we characterize a company really depends on the disease area. So for a company that's in a space saturated as IO, we would look at the valuation, of course, that's like the first thing we would look at because a lot of these IO companies are going to be uh, higher in valuation just because of how saturated that space is. Everyone's trying to look for the next checkpoint inhibitor. You need a lot of money actually to get through these oncology trials as well. So for IO, there, the, basically a list of things you would look at is, you know, can this work and um, is it better than what's already marketed or on the market? Um, whereas in rare diseases, the hurdle for um, whether or not it's going to work or if it's going to be superior to something on the market is a little bit lower just because there are usually no treatments and um, sometimes gene therapy, you know, whether or not something's going to work. If you're missing a certain gene or protein and you are able to just correct it with gene therapy, there's less of a risk that's not going to work. But for rare disease, um, we try to be careful with that because there has to be a patient population large enough to generate enough revenue, enough interest from pharma companies um, that the fund can exit eventually. So rare diseases in general, the valuation will be lower um, just because it's a less competitive space. They want to get these investors in. But you have to think about, you know, how big is the patient population? Is it even going to make it to the market? Like, are you even able to recruit these patients on these trials? Like, if there are only 100 patients in the entire U.S. for this one disease, um, it's going to be really hard to recruit them without the help of, say, like clinical centers and such. Do you get to interact with, you know, some of the medical centers in the Boston area in order to help, maybe not on the recruitment end, but just to help, you know, some of your portfolio companies that are interested in rare diseases to get them coordinated? Uh, definitely. So um, we talked to a lot of, um, we call them key opinion leaders or KLLs, basically just means industry experts um, to basically say, like understand diseases and help out our portfolio companies if they do need that. But a lot of times where our um, additive support comes in is going to be in South Korea because we're actually linked up with a lot of um, South Korean hospitals and um, one of our limited partners, our fund investors um, is LG Chem, which is going to be one of the largest um, pharma companies um, in South Korea. I know it's funny because they make TVs and such, but actually LG started out as a life sciences company. They might make drugs in South Korea, which is something that I, I learned when I started this job as well. Um, but yeah, you're always able to reach out to these um, experts at medical centers 
we actually have um, Dr. Bill Hahn from Dana-Farber on our advisory board. So he kind of helps us look through um, investments as well. Awesome. So one thing that you mentioned before is that investing in the healthcare space is very different than investing in the technology space. And one of the reasons is it's very important that you vet the science and it's de-risked in a way that when it ultimately goes into people, um, it might actually have some impact in modifying the disease and it'll be safe. So in your experience, what is the balance between doing financial due diligence and modeling versus doing some of the scientific due diligence? I would say healthcare VC or biotech VC specifically, it's about 80% scientific diligence and maybe 20% financial um, modeling and looking at Excel spreadsheets. Um, it's actually more of an art than a science, I would say. Once you get into it, you understand that, okay, there are all these, you know, comparable peers that we can look at, all these president transactions we can compare the companies to. And how comparable it is is really up to you. So finance is important for the job, obviously, especially when it comes to like um, discount cash flow modeling or DCF modeling. Um, but that's something you can pick up, especially if you're a scientist already, you probably have the brains and it'll probably just take you a few weeks to catch up. But it's really not that hard, I would say. So don't let that deter you from you know, wanting to go for more of a finance um, career. So CNBC is something that I watch avidly. And there's one guy that has recently come on there and said something interesting. His name is Chamath Palihapitiya. He's... Um, a venture capitalist. I think he mostly invests in, in in tech companies. One of the things that he's said recently is that the primary job of a business leader is to be a fantastic allocator of capital. And there are really two kinds of capital that matter, human capital and financial capital. So I'm just curious, to what extent does Celasta or venture capitalists in general participate in those two capital allocation activities with respect to the management of portfolio companies? In terms of financial capital, that's going to be mostly the partner's role um, in terms of how exactly we allocate the fund. For us, at least, we our fund is an eight-year fund, meaning we invest for four years, or we have a period of four years to invest and a four-year period for returns. We've been really active, though, so our funds um, have been lasting about one and a half years. We make an investment about every month or so, every month and a half. And that's actually, I think, pretty active for a fund our size. Um, so in terms of managing you know, additional new funds, the partners go out and they're going to be raising capital for our next fund. And partners' basic responsibility is to bring in capital to a fund. Whereas the associates and principals and everyone under partner are going to be you know, doing most of the diligence work on these investment opportunities. So in terms of financial capital, I will say that that's mostly uh, the partner's role. In terms of human capital, I think basically we try to, our team at least, we try to divide up. Um, for me, since I came from a PhD background um, in academia, um, I actually, uh, I'm able to hook up with um, UC Berkeley and Hopkins um, Innovation Centers. So fast forward and that's from the Sky Deck at Berkeley. I try to look for, you know, what's new out there. Who are these 
new first-time CEOs. Like I really want to give those people a chance. And I connect it to them because they're, you know, they have experiences similar to mine. Maybe it's a PhD student who really wants to turn their thesis project into a first-time company. And those are all really exciting um, things to look at. Um, whereas someone older, like a principal, might go into, you know, old investment banking relations or um, have different sources for um, getting companies and bound companies in to pitch. So I would say that I'm more focused on academic um, opportunities, whereas, um, you know, the principal or um, non-partner might be more focused on relationships that he's built um, in the past few years. How many portfolio companies are you in charge of looking after or do you have a set number or do you kind of have, you know, multiple roles within the company? Right. So in terms of taking care of portfolio companies, I think we all play a role there um, in taking care of them. Again, the hierarchy is pretty flat. So for me, I'm more prone to take care of or look after the portfolio companies that I source or have a huge role in doing the diligence. So that's going to be right now Chameleon and Rally Bile in the portfolio. I think we have, I'm not sure if all of them are on our website, but we have about 26 portfolio companies. Um, so I look after all of them and help out, but I would say that my eyes are really um, on Chameleon and Rally Bile most of the time. Chameleon is going to be a next gen um, gene therapy that basically encloses the AAV vector in an envelope, an exosome envelope. And then my second company is Rally Bio. And that one is um, an ethnic company. It's a pregnancy disease where um, mother's platelets are mismatched with the fetuses so that the mother um, has to make antibodies against the fetuses platelets. And um, that leads to obviously um, toxic neurotoxicity for when the baby comes out or it might not make it to full term. So those are two areas I'm really um, passionate about. Are there internships that you would recommend either through or programs maybe for people right after they graduate either at your company or you know other places in the Boston incubator space that you think might be beneficial for people wanting to go into a VC field? Yeah, so I guess there are two different biotech VCs worlds out there. So there are going to be those who invest, purely invest, and that's where I am. But there are also um, these company creation models that can be like Third Rock, um, Flagship. I think um, the company creation uh, funds actually do have summer internship opportunities. Um, I am almost positive Flagship has one that you can apply to maybe a year prior to your graduation. Um, in terms of investment funds like mine, the opportunities aren't there per se, but if you reach out to a partner or maybe even a principal um, and ask to intern, you may not be paid, but you would probably be able to shadow. I know a few of my Hopkins classmates um, did that and they were yeah, successful in just like reaching out through old connections or something. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing your perspectives with us today on Venture Capital. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermain. 
I'm Jenna Glasser. Thank you for listening.